Well, our sermon text this morning is in the book of 1 John. We're still going through our, our series through that book. And our sermon text today is 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there and follow along. And if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Give ear to God's word. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, from time to time during our study in this book, in John's first epistle uh, that we call 1 John um, we have had reason to, to kind of remind ourselves of what the purpose of the book is, that John's main purpose in writing in this book, this letter, he actually gives it to us, tells us later on in the very next chapter, he tells us why he wrote the book, why he wrote this letter to the churches, and that is that his purpose, his main purpose was that so believers in Christ might have a strong sense of assurance of our salvation. And he says this in 1 John 5, verse 13, in the very next chapter where he writes the following. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? That you may know that you have eternal life. He wants us to, those of us who believe in Christ, he wants us to be sure to know that we have eternal life. He doesn't want, and God doesn't want us as believers to go throughout our lives as Christians struggling with doubt as to whether we have truly have eternal life in Christ. He wants us to know. He wants us to have the joy and peace of heart and mind that comes from having a firm and settled conviction that we really do know God through faith in Jesus Christ and that heaven really is our home. You know, those of you who have, maybe all of us at one time or another, have struggled with a lack of assurance and with doubts, and there, there's probably not a more miserable way for a Christian to be in this life than to struggle with those kind of doubts and not be sure uh, and be assured that God, uh, that we know God and that we are reconciled to him through faith in Christ. Uh, we've seen throughout our study of this book from time to time that John provides us with uh, what I call three tests uh, so-called of the reality of our profession of faith, three tests of whether or not we truly have been born again of God and know God. And, and I've, I've summarized those uh, to make an acronym out of it, to make it easier for me to remember. And that acronym is the word LOT, L-O-T. And those, those three words are love, the L, uh, obedience, and truth. Those, were the, those are the basic things that John, the Apostle John, and the Holy Spirit working through him in, in, in the writing of this letter would have us to look to for us to have a sense of assurance of the reality of our faith and our knowledge of God. Simply put, if we are, this is, this, this is really the message of the whole book, in, boiled down, so to speak. If we are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, 
we will in some way, not perfectly, but we will love the brethren. If you're a believer in Christ, you are to love other Christians. And if you call yourself a believer in Christ and you don't love the brethren, John would say, you're not even a believer yet. There's something drastically missing and something drastically wrong. If we're genuine believers in Christ, we will also obey God's commandments. Not perfectly. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but, the, but the, the pattern of your life and my life as believers will be one that is marked by, by a desire and an effort to obey God's will as revealed in his commandments. And then last but not least, the T of the word lot is if we're believers in Christ, we will hold firmly to the truth of Christ as revealed in the word of God. Now that, I don't know if, if when I'm saying that, if, if maybe you're hearing it for the first time, if you're thinking that's a high bar or a low bar, uh, I don't know that that's the right way to look at it. I don't think it's supposed to be that high of a bar. That is, John is saying, if you're a believer, this is you. This, this is what should be true in your life. Again, not perfectly, but, but genuinely and sincerely. If we, have we seen through our look at this uh, book, all three of these tests are important. All three of these things must be true of a genuine believer in Christ. John doesn't say one of the three. You know, as long as one of these three is true of you, it's fine. He's saying these are the three things that are evidence of someone who's been born of God and knows God. And as important as all three of these tests uh, so-called are, uh, John, I think, spends most of his time in this letter teaching us about the importance of of love, the love of the brethren. They're all interrelated. You know, love, as we know, even in this verse, in the first verse of our text, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. It's a command. It's an exhortation for us who believe to love one another. So love is also obeying God's commandments. So there's a lot of, of overlap between uh, all these three uh, tests. But this test uh, of loving the brethren this is at least the third time so far in this short book that John has spent a good bit of time on this particular subject. He did so in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. I'll let you read that on your own for your own edification. Also in the previous chapter, 1 John 3, verses 11 to 18. So he's already spent quite a bit of time on the subject and on the need for us loving one another. And again, all, all three of those tests are interrelated, but in some ways it seems to be the case. As you read this letter, I think we find that love of the brethren seems to be the primary one that John would point our attention to for many ways. This one seems to be the key of, of those three. But notice, notice one thing about, about our text in verses 7 through 12. Even though John once again brings up the love of the brethren as a test of sorts, uh, related to our assurance of our salvation. Remember in, in verse 7, what does he say? Whoever loves has been what? Whoever loves, loves the brethren, has been born of God and knows God. And then conversely, verse 8, anyone who does not love, and he's talking about actual love as the Bible defines it for one, but love of the brethren specifically. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Verse 8, even though he's applying it as a test in some regard, he doesn't fail to apply it and apply these truths in such a way as to impress upon us the importance of our duty as believers to love one another. He takes this test, so-called, so to speak, and, and uses it as an exhortation to further uh, efforts at loving the brethren. 
He turns it into an exhortation, really all through the letter in many ways. There can be no doubt that John would have us to make it our sincere aim to walk in love toward one another. In a lot of ways, that's the theme of our text. In fact, the very phrase, love one another in your English translation, which we saw already twice in chapter 3, occurs at least three times in our text this morning. It, It practically bookends the entire passage. Front, middle, and end. Verse 7, verse 11, and verse 12 all contain the phrase, love one another. Now here the Apostle John, our theme today is the number three apparently. Uh, John gives us at least three reasons why we as believers in Christ must love one another. And so we're going to basically outline the sermon this morning around those three reasons. There might be other, other ways to outline a passage, but this one seems to me to be the one that makes the most sense. Uh, and we're gonna, So we're going to outline our, our sermon this morning around these three things. First, the first reason that John gives us is who believe that we must love one another. The first reason is because God is love. You could say it's a theological reason. The first reason why you and I as believers must love one another is because God himself is love. Verses 7 to 8. The second reason he gives that we must love one another as believers is because God has manifested his love to us by sending his son to save us from our sins, verses 9 through 11. And then third, last but not least, we must love one another because it's by our love for each other as believers that God's love is somehow perfected in us. Those are the three reasons that John gives us in short order in verses 7 through, through 12. So the first thing we're going to look at, the first reason John gives us, and it's a big one, as to why you and I must love each other as believers in Christ, uh, is it's really a theological reason. It's something that involves what's sometimes called theology proper, the study of God himself. And that is, the reason is, God is love. The reason why we must love one another is because God is love. Look at verses 7 through 8 one more time. John says, Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. I remember, I will not sing it, but back in the day in my old college days, we used to sing a Maranatha song that was this verse in the King James, put to music. It's why I have it memorized in the King James, Um, but there's a good reason they picked these verses for us to sing. Uh, and it's very helpful to memorize these kind of texts, even if it takes some singing them to do it. But uh, not only does John teach us that we as believers must love each other because, as he does say, love is from God, that would be enough, wouldn't it? If John even just said, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God, you could have put a period at the end of that and left it there. That should have been enough. And well, so what's he saying? Actual love, love the way the Bible defines it, not the way that we might define it ourselves, Actual love has one source and one source only. God himself is the only source and ever-flowing fountain of actual love. But John goes further than that, as if that weren't enough. We aren't just to love each other because God is the source of love. Even more than that, you and I are to love each other as believers because God himself is love. God is love. It would be hard to overemphasize the magnitude of this statement about God. In his book, um, one of my favorite books I've ever read, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, 
he has a, a chapter on the love of God, and he writes this. St. John's twice-repeated statement, God is love, it's found in 1 John 4, 8 and verse 16 in the same chapter. Uh, St. John's twice-repeated statement, God is love, is one of the most tremendous utterances in the Bible and also one of the most misunderstood. False ideas have grown up around it like a hedge of thorns, hiding its real meaning from view, and it is no small task cutting through this tangle of mental undergrowth Yet the hard thought involved is more than repaid when the true sense of these texts comes home to the Christian soul. Those who climb Scotland's Ben Nevis, that's the highest mountain in Scotland, those who climb Scotland's Ben Nevis do not complain of their labor once they see the view from the top. So what is he saying? He's saying this, this truth, this simple phrase, God is love, it's, it's a mountaintop Bible verse. It's a mountaintop Bible truth. And probably for the same reason, many have taken this, this mountaintop Bible truth and twisted it and made it mean things that it's never intended to mean. People misuse the, the idea that God is love to all kinds of uh, bad ends. Um, but it's a mountaintop truth about God that he is love. But it's, it's also one of the most abused statements in all of the Bible. I don't know if you've had this uh, experience with some of your unbelieving friends and colleagues and, and whatnot. Um, sometimes I jokingly say kind of sarcastically that every unbeliever on earth knows one Bible verse and it's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest ye be judged. You know, that, that, everybody throws that in your face whenever you confront some kind of a sin. Oh, judge not. Even though if you read the rest of the passage, it's not really what that means. Uh, people abuse that. But I think people abuse this text even more and in many worse uh, ways. Many wrench this statement that God is love. Many wrench this statement so far out of the context in such a way to try to make it, uh, to make love the only attribute or perfection of God. You know, very often people try to, to flip the phrase around as if you could do that, like as if love is God, which the Bible does not say. The Bible says God is love. Well, many would pit his love against his holiness and against his justice, against his goodness and truth, as if God's perfections were somehow at war with each other, or that as if God's love somehow canceled out the rest, as if God's own perfections were in many ways contrary to each other, but nothing could be further from the truth. Maybe you've heard phrases like this. I know I have. People say often things like this. Well, a God of love would never do such and such. You ever hear somebody say that? Well, a God of love, God would never, if he's a God of love, allow this to happen. Uh, if he's a God of love, he would never judge the wicked. He would never condemn a certain lifestyle. He would never certainly send anyone to hell for their sins. You ever hear that before? I've heard that so many times I can't even tell you. But that's just not true, is it? It's a very inconvenient truth. Uh, that God's love is also a holy love in some ways, and a just love and all these things. What, what happens is we have this bad tendency. You know, the, the beginning of the Bible says that God made man in his own image, and what unbelieving man has done since is tried to return the favor. We try to remake God in our own image. We, we, we can't imagine that God could be not the way we are. And because we think a certain thing is fine, we assume, well, God must be okay with that too. Otherwise, I'm, I'm in trouble. Right? That's really what we do. We, we kind of cast God, as if we could do that, in our own 
in our own image. And, and there's a word for that. It's called idolatry. And it's blasphemous to make God as if he were us rather than try to conform ourselves to the image of God as much as we can. That God is love in no way minimizes or undoes the fact that he is also infinitely holy and just. In fact, to say that God is love is to say that God's love is an infinitely holy love. And his holiness is a loving holiness, and and infinitely so. There is no contradiction or conflict between God's attributes or perfections. Not at all. And so what is John's point? Why does John bring up the fact that God is love here in our, in our passages this morning? Why does he mention the love of God and that God is love here in our text? First and foremost, John does this to show us that, that for the very reason that, that love is from God, and even more so because God is love, because of these truths, if we have truly been born of God and know God, then we too must love as well. And know when he says, when he talks about knowing God, you know, John uses that phrase quite a bit. Uh, in John 17, verse 3, he uses that phrase as, a, as a, a synonym for eternal life. He says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And it doesn't mean not just knowing about God. It doesn't just mean eternal life consists in having a set of... of, of uh, knowledge and, and statements in your mind about God. I have certain propositions about God in my mind, therefore I'm, I'm right with God. When he says knowing God, it's much like, in, in a bigger way than this, but it's much like when you talk about knowing a person. You might know a lot about a famous person. I always kind of joke around that um, you know I, I forget lots of things, uh, but for some reason baseball statistics stick in my head, certain ones, They'll probably be the last thing I'll ever remember would be that before I die. Is I'll be on my deathbed and you could say, "Hey, Andy, you know, what's how many home runs did Mike Schmidt hit in his career?" And I'll be 548, three-time MVP. Like, like I've never met Mike Schmidt. I don't know Mike Schmidt. I know a lot about Mike Schmidt. I, I've heard he's a believer. I hope he is. He'll never see this, but if he is, uh, I'll see you in heaven. Uh, if not before then. But I don't know him. You can know a lot of things about God, but not know God. And so when John says, anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, he means you're in a, you're in a right relationship with God. You, are, you know God. You have been reconciled to him, and he is your God and your Savior and your heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of knowing he's talking about here in, in his text. Uh, it's because God is love and that all love is from God that everybody who truly knows God and has been born uh, of God will share in his likeness in that regard. There's a family likeness and resemblance to those who truly know and have been born of God. And likewise, flip that around, the absence of such self-sacrificial love for the brethren is evidence that one has not yet been born of God and does not truly know God regardless of what they profess to believe. The presence of such love of the brethren is sure evidence that we really have been born again and truly know God. And this is one of the means by which a believer is to have an infallible assurance of your salvation in Christ. And by this we should be further motivated and energized to seek to grow more and more 
in our sincere love for the brethren. See how our growth and knowledge of God should lead to the transformation of our lives. Because God is love, John would say and does say, because God is love, let us love one another more and more. Well, that brings us to the second reason that John gives us in our text as to why we as believers must love one another. We must love one another not just because God is love, but also because God has loved us and sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. Not only is God love, but he has acted on our behalf for our benefit, for our salvation, out of that love by sending his son. Look at verses 9 to 11. John says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, or in us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, what's the takeaway? If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we are to love each other in Christ because God is love. If we know God and been born of him, we are also to love one another because Christ uh, was sent by God in that love to save us from our sins. So not only is God love, but God has also manifested his love toward us. And again, how has God done that? How does the Bible define or set the standard for love? In God sending his only begotten son into the world. Why? So that we might, John says, live through him. Verse 9. Here in our text, we see the greatness and majesty of the love of God towards sinners like us. And here we see the folly of those who would try to pit God's love against his holiness and against his justice and truth. No, no such thing is necessary. God did not need to do any such thing uh, to show his love for us. He did not override his justice. He didn't undo his holiness. He saved us in love and in justice in, in many ways because God loved us. Uh, he saved us because God is holy and just and true he saved us not by sweeping our sins under the rug of heaven or denying himself in any way which he cannot do, but he did so by sending his son to take our sins upon himself on the cross so that you and I might live in him. Think about this. Once again, John points us back, as he always does, to the cross of Jesus Christ, to his death on the cross as the atonement for our sins and for our salvation. If you want to know what love is, that's it. If you want to know what love looks like, that's it. That is God's greatest act of, of love. And that's really what, what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. God does not have to save you in love in such a way as to undo his justice. Listen to what John says, or, or Paul says rather. Romans 3, 23 to 26, he writes, For all have sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, here's that word again, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, here it is, so that he, God, so that he might be just 
or righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God saves us from our sins by sending his son to die in our place and take the wrath that we deserve for our sins upon himself on the cross. And in so doing, God's love and his justice meet. And they are in perfect agreement. God in no way undoes his justice. He fulfills it by sending his son. God saving you is in no way an unjust act on God's part. He is just because of Christ. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith, as he says in Jesus. And so not just the nature and perfections of God, but the wonderful works of God for our salvation, these are the things that should spur us on as believers to love one another more and more. And as John says later on in this very chapter in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Very often we have these uh, debates among commentators and scholars about what that verse means. And they say, well, does it mean we love God because he first loved us? Does it mean we love each other because God first loved us? I always cheat and say it's both. But for sure, he's talking about loving the brethren. He doesn't have to say, you know, add the, you know, the, the next word and, and fill in the blank for us. He could have said, we love God because he loved us first, or he could have loved us, we, we love each other because he loved us first. It's both. But either way, the love comes from God and is initiated by, by him. And is this, is this not what John tells us in our text when he says, in verse 10, in, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so love, actual love, love does not and cannot start with us. It did not start with us and it cannot start with us. Why? Love is of God. It's not of us. We, we outside of Christ, None of us loved God. Not a single one of us. Outside of Christ, you may not think this, but it's true. Outside of Christ, we hated God. Before you were a Christian, if you can think back that far, you didn't love God, you hated him. In fact, we were enemies of God. We weren't friends of God, and yet God loved us. God loved us first. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, he says in verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's love. I don't know about you, but that does not come naturally to, to me, and I don't think it comes naturally to anybody. We love people who we find to be lovely. We love people who we find to be pleasant and all these things, or to do things nice for us. That's, that's the natural-born kind of love. Remember, Christ said, love your enemies. And he said, if you love those, I'm paraphrasing, if you love those who are nice to you, you know, good job. But what do you do better than the pagans? Everybody does that. Everybody loves those who, who are nice to them. But God loves those who were sinners, who were rebels, and who were his enemies. That's when he sent his son to die for us. And what does John tell us again in verse 11? Beloved, if God so loved us in that way, we also ought to love one another. That's what the word so there means. If God loved us in that way, then we also must love one another. In fact, this maybe as I'm reading that text, you're saying that sounds like another verse. 
It's the same language that, that, that John uses in John 3.16, isn't it? Maybe the first Bible verse many of us ever memorized. For God so what? So loved the world. Now, you know, that word so in English, well, that means the greatness. It really means in this way. God loved the world in, because God loved the world in this way uh, that, that he sent his only begotten son. That's how God loved a lost world of sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son or his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should what? should not perish but have eternal life. If God loves sinners like us in this way, how can we fail to love one another as believers? Even when it's hard, even when they aren't, you know, when we aren't treating each other the way that we should, we are to love one another because why? Because God did that for us and then some. God sent his only son to die for our sins that we might be reconciled to him as his children. No wonder we should love one another. Ian Hamilton writes this. He says, John, the Apostle John, John never forgets he is writing as a pastor. He understands that the supreme motivation for godly living lies in us grasping the wonder of God's love for us. The sheer undeserved kindness or grace of God's love for us should inspire us to love one another. You ever struggle to love the brethren? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but every hand would be up, right? Uh, Some of the people that we don't get along with the most are probably our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you you love them anyway. You work on loving them. But how, how is it that we can grow in the love of the brethren? Well, I think our text tells us in many ways. To, to think about God, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to grow in our knowledge of, of our God, who is love and who from whom all love comes and also by thinking of the cross of Christ and making much of God's gift of love in his, in his son. If you want to grow in your love for God and for others, especially the brethren, then seek more and more to grasp the wonder of who God is, the God who is love, and also of God's love for us in sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins that we might live through him. There's a very practical benefit of, of growing in your knowledge now, there can be just head knowledge. We could read the Bible all day and fill our heads with just head knowledge. That's not what we're talking about. But you have to start there. Grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his cross, and we will grow in our knowledge and ability to love each other more and more by God's grace. Well, that brings us to the third and the final point in our text, which is that we must love each other, not just because God is love, not just because God has sent his son to die for our sins, to reconcile us to him, but also because in some way, loving one another is how the love of God in Christ is somehow perfected in us. That is how God's love in us is somehow perfected or made complete. Look at verse 12 one more time. and There John says, no one has ever seen God. If we, It feels like there should be a word but there. But it, no one has ever seen God if we love one another Two things. God abides in us and his love is what? Perfected or completed in us. Now we may be, maybe when I was reading the text at the start of the sermon, maybe you were following along and you said to yourself, why does he bring up no one has seen God? It feels like a, like a non sequitur. Like John's just rolling along writing and then just, eh, no one has seen God. By the way, just in case you didn't know, 
Um, just thought I would throw that in there. Like we might write and think like that, but that certainly wasn't what John uh, was doing. Why does he say no one has seen God in this context? Why does he bring it up? I, you know, it, we, from time to time I've said uh, that the, the false teaching that John is combating here in this letter is an ancient teaching called Gnosticism or an early version of it. And I don't want to rehash all the different things about Gnosticism. Everybody's eyes will glaze over and, and all these things. Um, but it seems likely that, that the Gnostics, these false teachers that John was, was refuting here in this letter uh, that were disturbing the peace and purity of the church in his day, were probably claiming some kind of mystical experience or vision of God. You ever see a movie uh, and somebody's on the phone in the movie and you don't hear the other side of the conversation? Or you ever be in a room with somebody, they're talking, and you don't know exactly what the subject is, but you're, you know, what are they saying? What are they saying? You kind of have to reverse engineer the conversation to figure out what the, what the subject is. That's kind of how we have to deal with some of the false teaching that John was dealing with in 1 John. In some cases, he spells it right out for us. They denied the, the incarnation of Christ. They did not confess Christ as revealed in Scripture. But I think that's what we're seeing here is he's probably saying, you know, leaving out something that they would have known well, the people he's writing to. They were probably claiming some kind of, of mystical experience or vision of God and yet, what does John say? They can't have seen God. They might claim, I mean, that would be a great vision to have, right? That would be, that'd be something to brag about. Hey, you know, well, I, I've got my seminary degree, and somebody else could be like, well, I've seen God. You know, top that, I have these visions. And John's like, no, no one has seen, no one has seen God. Uh, and why does he know that they haven't seen God besides the fact that no one ever has yet? But it's the fact that they denied the love of God. How can they claim to have had a vision of God or have seen God if they denied God's love? How have they denied God's love? They denied the incarnation of Christ. They denied his death and resurrection for our sins. They denied the atonement. And they certainly did not love the brethren, which is the result of all those things they denied. They did not love the brethren. You know, many, many, many uh, theories, different theories of the atonement, so-called, uh, have been expressed throughout the history of false teaching. Uh, and, but in many ways, every single one of them that denies the atoning death of Christ denies the, the love of God. Many of them try to say they're doing it to uphold the love of God. But it's not what they do at all. They undo it in its entirety. Why? Because they deny the atonement, the propitiation of Christ, which is the greatest act of God's love in history for the salvation of, of sinners. Now, John tells us something that's kind of shocking. Uh, certainly, I think, when I was working on this for the sermon, I, I find the language that he uses here to be kind of shocking. I don't know if you do as well. He tells us not only that God himself abides in us when we love one another, he also tells us that in some way, God's love, it says his love is perfected in us when we love one another. I don't know if you thought through that when you were reading it. What does that mean, that God's love is perfected in us or completed in us? Is there something lacking in the love of God? I mean, to say that God is love, all love is from God, and that God manifested his love among us by sending his son that we might live through him. Like, Is there something greater than the cross? Certainly not. But is there something in some way lacking in the love of God that we are supposed to in some strange way 
complete or or hath perfected in or by us. Um, I, it's as if he was saying that, that our sincere love for the brethren, as imperfect as it is among Christians, is the natural conclusion or purpose of God's love for us. It's, it's as if something were missing from the love of God in us if we do not love one another. That is, that is the kind of language John is using here. He's not in any way saying that God's love is lacking something, but it's as if we don't complete the picture by loving one another that there's something lacking, something that would be obscene, unthinkable. That's kind of the picture John is, is saying here. If we love one another, God abides in us. The Gnostics said they saw God. They had visions of God. He's saying, no, no, love one another and God abides in you, dwells in you, and by that his love among us is made complete. More than that, John seems to be saying that it is in the love of the brethren uh, that God may be in some sense seen in the world, even if not literally so. Our love for each other as believers in Christ is evidence of the truth of the love of God in Jesus Christ. You could say it's, it's a proof of the gospel for the world to see. I'll leave this for your own reading. It's, I don't have it written down in front of me, but in, in the book of Acts, remember the, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2? I, I seem to refer to this t- passage every other week, it's, it feels like. But remember what happens? He talked about 3,000 souls added to the church that day in, in one sermon, the, the biggest revival in the book of Acts in some ways. And then it talks about the people of God, these brand new convert, converts, right? And they devoted themselves to those four things, the means of grace. We call them the outward and ordinary means of grace. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship of the brethren, the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. They they met in public worship and prayed uh, with each other. And then what does it say? A great fear fell upon all. Everybody had everything in common. In other words, the, the church, they weren't socialists, they weren't communists, but they took care of each other with in in real ways. People that, had, that didn't have something, the people that had properties sold them and gave the proceeds to the apostles to, to help meet the needs of their, of their new family in Christ. And it had such an effect on the surrounding people around them that great fear fell upon everybody. They found favor with all the people and many people day by day were being saved. In other words, people were like, there's something going on here. God used their real you know, down to brass tacks, love for each other to, to bring a revival that brought many other people to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's an evidence of the gospel and a proof of the gospel as well. Not only is it for our assurance, but it's also in some ways a testimony to those outside. And one last thing, notice how all three persons of the Trinity have been woven throughout John's appeal to us to love one another. That God the Father is love and that God the Father sent his, his son to save us because of that love he mentions. And then he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit by name, but certainly that's the implication. It's by the work of his spirit, not named by, but, but implied, uh, that we are to love one another. It's by the work of his spirit that that love of God is completed in us. The love of the triune God for us that, that is the ultimate motivation for us as believers to love one another. If that doesn't get us to love each other as we should, nothing will. 
There's no greater motivation John could offer than that, the love, the steadfast love of the, of the triune God for us as sinners, saving us from our sins. In conclusion, summing it up, and I'll close it with, with this quote by James Montgomery Boyce. He says, These are the three reasons Christians are to love one another. First, because God is love and we are of God. Second, because God loved us in Christ and so revealed his love to us. And third, because God is at work in us by his spirit to bring that love to completion. And notice, John doesn't just say, well, it's just going to happen. Sometimes we treat these truths this way. Well, if you're a Christian, you'll just love one another. There's some truth to that. But John doesn't, doesn't just leave it at that, does he? He says, beloved, what? Don't worry, you'll love each other. Just, you know. No, beloved, let us, and he includes himself, right? Beloved, let us, let us love one another. And he mentions it three times in the text. That's the exhortation built on all this, what we might think of as dry, dusty doctrine. It, it isn't dry or dusty. He, he teaches this truth about God and about Christ and the Holy Spirit is working us to exhort us further more and more to walk in love as we ought to do as God loved us and sent his son to die for our sins. Amen.